Good afternoon, you are listening to Resonance 104.4 FM and this is Art Then and Now with me, your host, Anna Gammons. This is the show where we explore art from the past and art from the present to understand how we as humans express ourselves through time. Our theme this week is colour, which is one of my absolute favourite topics. And I will be speaking to Eleanor Nair, curator of the Barbican's exhibition of Lee Krasner, Living Colour. But before that, I am going to hopefully brighten up your Thursday afternoon even more by exploring some of the developments of colour in art. I wanted to do an episode on colour for a while because for a variety of reasons that people fall in love with artwork and are attracted to a piece of art, my love has always been with colour. And from a really young age, I would gravitate towards the works of impressionists and artists such as Picasso because of their bold and unapologetic use of it. Um, impressionist artists are also in, under this umbrella too with their kind of experimental and expressive use of colour as well. And I think the only natural place to start when talking about colour is impressionism for a variety of reasons. I do talk about impressionism a lot on this show but it's only because it was such a turning point in art and it kind of represents all the things that I am most passionate about so so uh, yeah so not least because impressionists revolutionize the way that we understand and use color they shunned the rules of the establishment that demanded that colors be earthy and realistic and opted for a more expressive and vibrant way of painting things and they were able to do this because as I've talked about before the 19th century technological developments not only changed the actual landscape of Europe, i.e. with the introduction of the railway and, you know, other kind of locomotives, but in the way that we could create art. And this was kind of because previously painters had made their own paints individually by grinding and mixing dry pigment powers with sort of linseed oil. Very, very time consuming and really, really hard to get that vibrant colour that we see in Impressionist's work. So the development of synthetic oil paints meant that a new and extensive variety of colours were available from the about the 1860s. And this included colours such as that cobalt blue we see everywhere, viridian, cadmium yellow, and also ultramarine and cerulean blue too. They could also use these pigments unmixed because uh, they could come straight out of the tube as well, which is also part of the whole technology. They didn't have to carry them around in bottles anymore, store them in pig's bladders. I know, gross. Um, <laughs> they could carry them in tubes. And that explains why they could use these vivid and unrealistic colours in their works now. Now, Monet is well known for his very thoughtful use of colour and particularly for how he used colour to depict light and changing seasons. He is one of the most well-known Impressionists as well, and he's very much seen as the the father of Impressionism because his very, very famous water lily paintings. Um, There are some seemingly sort of fluorescent tones that can be seen in works such as The Haystacks and Impression Sunrise, which was painted in 1872. And this was actually the painting that gave Impressionists their name as it was exhibited in Paris for the first time in 1864 um, and the painting kind of uh, provoked critics to sort of criticise almost the exhibition say oh you know this is just impressionism and that's where the kind of name came from it was all kind of induced by this painting so very very famous for that reason but the painting depicts the port of Le Havre at sunrise and this kind of burning orange sun is such a vibrant focal point in this piece against that kind of smoky blue clouds and water 
and uh, sort of the bleed, the blending of pastel tones around this orange sun sort of create a look of kind of fading light and a drowsy sort of, um, well, drowsy kind of morning atmosphere, really. But the painting seems so alive because of that bright, bright orange. Now I come on to Degar, who is one of my favourite impressionists. Apparently not a very nice guy, so it's difficult for me to talk about him. But um, his work is, you know, is kind of breathtaking and also his use of colour too. But before we talk about him, I kind of want to take you back to primary school briefly bear with me and help you remember your year two painting class probably about around year two I'd imagine you may recall learning about the color wheel and specifically complementary colors now these are colors that are opposite on the color wheel so for example red and green orange and blue like the painting I spoke about earlier the sunrise painting um, by Monet and purples and yellows and they are interesting pairings of colors because one next to the other creates a really really bold effect because they are opposite so they really make each other stand out to us when we see them in our eyes and it's not always obvious why when you see a painting where it's got these two kind of almost clashing colors and I think oh they look really odd together but great together and that is why. So as I said about Degas, he is one of the artists who loved to manipulate colour theory in his paintings of ballerinas and we often see this kind of Indian red against this turquoise green in many of his pastel works and it has often amazed me in so many of his pieces that I have been fortunate enough to see that the dresses of his ballerinas, they look kind of white uh, but actually close up, there's sort of glimmers of the whole colour spectrum in them. It is absolutely incredible. And to create sort of contour and depth in these costumes, he uses different shades of colour rather than just white and black. He's sort of using, as I said, the entire spectrum and that kind of creates this sort of sense of harmony in the painting. It sort of brings it together by using this sort of plethora of colours. Um, and it sometimes goes unnoticed as well that colour can be used as a compositional device as well in artwork to kind of balance things out because just as your attention is taken by an object in a room colour can also steal attention and make or break the overall harmony of a piece so many times I found myself using colour to kind of balance something out instead of adding anything extra to the scene I'll use colour to kind of divert or um, demand attention in a piece now, Van Gogh is one of the most famous Impressionists, not least because of his uh, very famous series of sunflower paintings painted in 1888. He really capitalised on the evolution of colour. He's using this cadmium yellow I spoke about earlier that he could get in a tube, he could get lots of it, he wouldn't have to make it, which meant that he could use it in abundance. And he really does. He sort of uses this impasto, really thick, um, almost sculptural textures in his work, which kind of give sort of ordinary subject matters a, a such drama as well uh, yellow as well was the colour of happiness for Van Gogh and his abundant use of it clearly tells the narrative of his friendship with Paul Gauguin who had one of the sunflower paintings hanging in his room when he visited um, there are also two paintings uh, sorry one painting called uh, Two Crabs in the National Gallery by Van Gogh which was painted using predominantly red and green now if you remember what I just said about red and green they are complementary colours which means the vibrancy of each of the colours is so striking and they're used together makes a very mundane subject of two crabs on a table much more exciting. 
Okay, now we're moving on to Gauguin, who I was fortunate enough to, uh, I was going to say meet then, but no, no, he's he's long gone. Um, <laughs> his work I saw in the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Met, if you're trendy and cool. Um, and there are a few paintings there that absolutely stole the show from me. Um, and they were by Gauguin. And it was the siesta, which was painted in 1892. And it's sort of depicted by, um, it's Haitian, sorry, Tahitian women. And it's got the full spectrum of colours in it. It's so uplifting and playful because of it. And you've sort of got this green background and a lady dressed in red, again, complimentary colours, and they're kind of fighting for our attention, these colours, but they're surrounded by the softer tones of mauve and dusty pink as well, which sort of give the whole feel of the painting. It kind of brings it together. And also the contours and shading are created using sort of outlines and darker hues of some kind of midnight blue instead of, as I said, black or diluting the painting there's just a kind of more there's more variety of those bright colors and also outlines too Um, but the use of color here and in many of Gauguin's works is particularly appropriate for his subject matter in 1891 Gauguin sought to escape the constraints of European society he was done he's out of there and he said that Tahiti kind of offered him some sort of personal and creative freedom which he desperately craved and colour is used in his painting La Orena Mariette, one of his most famous works, painted in 1891, as a compositional aid. It sort of divides the painting into sections, highlights different figures of the painting and helps tell the overarching kind of story about um, the mother of Christ. And that is what the painting is about. It's not immediately obvious because... As I said, his palette is so different to maybe kind of um, the Renaissance works we're used to seeing. They have a very, very muted palette, but it is so bright. It's so bold um, and kind of more appropriate for that tropical setting as well, I would say. But I also think symbolically his choice of bold and often clashing colours, I think, represents this sort of newfound freedom that he had um, abroad. Now, Matisse is probably one of the most famous impressionists for his bold and unapologetic use of colour. And his painting, The Forest of Fontainebleau, you can go and see it in the National Gallery. In 1909, it was painted. Um, it's a fine example of Matisse's almost sort of childlike, bold and colourful strokes. The red of the foreground of the painting is offset by that lime green and the blue sky similarly complemented by those earthy, warm tones, those kind of oranges, which are its complementary colour. And they feature throughout the painting to give it a sense of balance and harmony all round. And Matisse was so iconic with his use of colour that he is now regarded as the lead figure in the Fauvist movement that began in the early 20th century, sort of the lead on from Impressionism, if you like. Um, It thrived mainly in Paris in the 20th century, but it was characterised by the sort of non-naturalistic, vivid colour work and wild brushstrokes and very, very simple subject matters. Um, It was more about expressive way of painting, um, even more so than the Impressionists, actually. Um, but they were also the first artists to study these sort of oceanic and African subject matters as this is kind of their rejection of traditional Western standards of art and hence why probably Gauguin was so bold in his expressive depictions of Tahitian life but it was because he was kind of, um, he was a leading figure in the Fauvist movement but also you know, very into that idea of kind of rejecting um, the way that the academic um, art was sort of perceived and, and you know, in the academy. 
So on to Picasso. Uh, last but very much not least, um, he was the 20th century um, kind of colour connoisseur and with many artists expressing emotion through colour is absolutely paramount and Picasso is well known for his colour phases that kind of mirror his emotional states. For example, he learned the death of his friend in 1901 and entered into a blue, fla- a blue phase, sorry, uh, both emotional, emotionally. So he was obviously in a kind of in a state of depression and he was, you know, blue in that sense, but also with his use of colour and his blue works. Um, and his work is kind of supposed to describe those sort of darkest and most depressive facets of human nature and I've always found Picasso's work um, particularly insightful with his use of colour and his later abstracts of key figures such as Dora Maar um, are so so playful and colourful and it almost means that um, you know these people kind of literally bring the colour back into his life. Um, so for me, colour has never been merely about what we see, but about our, how our brain kind of responds to what we see emotionally, vis- viscerally and chemically. And as humans, we have the ability to see and feel colour. And for me, it is one of life's greatest joys. Good afternoon, you are listening to Resonance 104.4 FM and this is Art Then and Now. I hope you enjoyed my exploration of 19th and 20th century developments of colour in painting. Now it is time for my interview with the wonderful Eleanor Nair who curated the Lee Krasner Living Colour Exhibition currently at the Barbican. I was intrigued to learn more about an artist that I actually didn't really know a lot about up until this point. She's been very overshadowed by her husband Jackson Pollock. Um, But this exhibition enlightened me to the work of of, uh, an incredible post-war American artist um, and forced me to sort of reflect on so many cultural issues uh, such as gender, race, immigration, mental health um, and how we as kind of humans can use art not only to survive in our deepest, darkest moments but also to really live the best life we can. Here's Eleanor. With Eleanor Nairn who is curator of the Barbican exhibition Lee Krasner, Living Colour. I have to say, this was a truly fabulous exhibition. You Thank did an amazing you. job. Uh, what was it like having this massive project on your hands? It's been really exciting. I mean, she's an artist who I feel incredibly passionate about. I was conscious that I had this great privilege, which is that I specialise in post-war American art, so I would travel a lot in the US and I would spend time with her work in these museum collections and mm-hmm. I'd often find that they'd have a very visceral impact upon me. Sure, yeah. And I felt, you know, sort of cheated on behalf of friends and colleagues and peers mm-hmm. and people here of like, why don't why don't we why get we the not chance? Doing this? Yeah. Totally. Um, so I'd love you to say a little bit about the exhibition in your own words. I mean, it's hard to kind of summarise because it's yeah. such a big project. But yeah, if you could describe it for the listeners. So the, the first concept of the show was simply it needs to be done. The last Mm -hmm. large-scale presentation of her work here in the UK was in 1965 at the Whitechapel Gallery. Um, So it's more than 50 years ago. That was her first exhibition, wasn't it? First major major institutional overview. And so that was, you know, it was interesting that it felt like, oh, okay, well, maybe the UK actually has quite an illustrious past in terms of her. And Mm. why have we kind of, you know, why have we slipped? Why have we not had a moment since? So that was the first thing was thinking, we need to have a large scale presentation of her work. So this Mm -hmm. is not going to be, you know, sometimes people ask me, there are many other women artists from that period who Mm -hmm. I deeply admire as well. Mm. Joan Mitchell, Helen Frankenthaler, for mm. instance, sometimes people say to me, did you think about staging yeah. a number of them together? 
And I felt, well, actually, each of them deserves their own due. And we don't tend totally to do a show where we just put Pollock and Rothko and de Kooning together no. because they were men. I was so just about to say that. I don't think you, yeah. Let's not do the let's same. Let's the same gravitas. Just the same importance. And allow their gender to be the linking force. So she, totally it was clear agree. that she really needed to have her own show. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that I wanted to tell the story from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So I knew I wanted some of the earliest self-portraits from 1928 because... There's so much that's really interesting about her identity, you know, her growing up in this Orthodox Jewish Russian emigre yes. household. And she speaks a lot about that, actually. Like, it's yeah. very much a thread through her work. Yeah. And her adopting the name Lee, you know, she's born mm. Lena. So I knew we needed to start at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And I was conscious that we'd want to run most of the way to the end. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to play to this idea that she worked in cycles. So I wanted mm -hmm. to feel like each cycle that she worked in could be given its own clarity yes. of vision. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And you've certainly done that. I want to talk a little bit about The, the Living Colour, this title. Mm. It feels very obvious to me why it's titled that, but what was kind of your thoughts on the title of the show or the exhibition? Well, I wanted something, um, I wanted something that suggested the energy of the work because, you know, mm -hmm. some people would say, you know, this is a monographic mm -hmm. show, why not just give it the name of the artist? Mm -hmm. You know, people did say that. You could just call it Lee Krasner and that's that. Yeah. And I felt like, well, she's not really a known name here, which is understandable because her work hasn't been shown here. She hasn't had exhibitions. There hasn't yep. been a book. You know, there's no reason why people would be familiar with her. So mm -hmm. it's very presumptuous to just put her name on its own. Mm -hmm. So what if we could combine it with something that would give a sense of what a delight it is to be with the work in the flesh? Yes. And I like the idea of living colour because it was about colour that is so vibrant it's almost alive. Mm -hmm. And also about yeah. a life lived in full colour mm -hmm. and about the capacity of both of those things to mm -hmm. infuse the work. Oh, I think that's a beautiful way of saying it and I totally agree for me it was very much that she seems to express herself through colour and sometimes even the lack of exactly. colour as well which and is so important. And that being as powerful a gesture. Yeah absolutely. Um, we talked about the fact that she has not gained the recognition in Europe that she deserves. Um, why now then? Why, yeah. why do you think this is, do you think there's kind of a fertile environment for this kind of artist? The, the fact that she's a woman obviously plays into that. What's your kind of take on that? I mean, at the risk of being incredibly boring, I do think that there are, you know, people often want this very kind of sensational view of why has she been in the shadows for so mm. long? And I sometimes have to say, well, she hasn't necessarily been in the shadows. It's just we haven't necessarily been conscious of her here. And likewise, yes. you know, why have we not done this show in so long? Well, mm -hmm. if people knew what it cost to transport a four and a half meter painting mm. like the one we're looking at next to Yeah, it's phenomenal, actually. It, massive. You know, to these are enormous paintings yeah. that are coming from private collections yeah. and they're coming a long way. They're mostly mm -hmm. coming from America and in some instances we have works that's come as far as Australia. That's Goodness, yeah. logistically incredibly complicated to do. It's mm. also expensive to do, which Absolutely. is part of why we've worked with these three other European partners. Mm. So I think part of it is as simple as that. Yeah. There are other really boring factors that no, play nothing, into it. Nothing for, you said so far has been remotely boring. For the boring. curatorial geeks amongst us. You know, things like, for instance, because the last major show yeah. was done in 1999 to 2000, lots of the work, um, the photographs are old transparencies. Mm. So they don't even look remotely like the paintings. So say somebody was writing right. an article about Krasner mm. and they requested an image of the work, what they would be given would be a kind of poor cousin yeah, of yeah, what yeah, the actual yeah. painting was. 
and then somebody would read that article kind of revive and that. would think, oh, this feels a bit dull. <clears throat> yeah. So until so we've actually for our catalogue we've rephotographed about seventy five percent of the works in the show precisely wow. because wow. if you call a show living colour you've got to stand by those totally, words. Totally, totally. And as like, yeah, as I was kind of, it, it, it's difficult to revive an artist when. I mean, it's the visual medium, isn't it? It's, you, you need the quality so of the image, especially now. So these things become quite self-perpetuating. Absolutely. Um, I noticed that you didn't start the exhibition in a chronological order. You mm. almost started it with the reintroduction of colour into mm -hmm. her life. Mm -hmm. um, what was the intention behind the way that you started? I thought yeah, it was really interesting. so I think... Um, Curatorially, I think it can be quite predictable if we really do start, you know, we're dealing with a 50-year career in this exhibition. So mm. if you really do start with the self-portraits in 1928 and yeah. you're running through to 11 ways to use the word to see collages in 1976 and you're getting 50 years blow by blow by blow by blow, yeah. it can feel, you know, like how we structure a novel or any other kind mm. of piece of storytelling. Mm. It can feel quite predictable yes. and a bit rote. Totally. And we start to feel uh, like we're being told a story that we already know. Mm. Whereas when you enter the story in media res, as mm. it were, when you enter partway through, you can really capture an audience and you can say like, it totally oh, had that this is, me. <laughs> you know, where am I? Yes. The first thing they want to do is kind of orientate themselves. Yes, that's and very true. it allowed us to introduce Springs in Long Island, which is such an important part of the mm. story. And also in terms of just the fact that I think a lot about her legacy and me as a guardian for that legacy, the first two rooms are incredibly accomplished painting. Now, yes. the self-portraits are pretty good so, too. I would say actually, as in for somebody so young at the time, yeah. they were phenomenal, but yes. Yeah, so. And I think to put an artist forward in that very confident way mm. is really important because otherwise mm -hmm. they wouldn't necessarily appreciate it. It's very yes. rare when yes. artists themselves are involved yeah. in a retrospective that it is purely chronological. Yeah. Yeah. They don't love it. No. <laughs> I think I think that, that was an incredibly inventive way to do it, and as you said as well, she, uh, you know, Krasner has kind of struggled with this idea of just being a woman, and to give her that boldness straight off the bat, mm. I think is really important, and mm. I think that this absolutely accomplishes it. I just thought it was a really um, interesting way of doing it. Um, the rooms upstairs, they're considerably smaller than mm -hmm. the space downstairs. There's a freedom to the space downstairs that the upstairs mm -hmm. doesn't have. It it feels slightly more intimate and a mm -hmm. bit closed. Mm. Um, was that? Uh, kind of reflective of her work at the time. I think she was maybe her working mm. situation. Well, the, the Barbican does have, it's quite um, a challenging space to work with because we have such different scales of space between yes. upstairs and downstairs. Absolutely. So it's always a bit of a question about when you're thinking about staging a show of an artist is will they be able to operate in those two different spaces? Mm. So I often look for artists where they won't just be able to survive those two different kinds of spaces, but they'll actually really flourish. Yeah, absolutely. And Kras is a good example of, you know, a key point in the story is her moving out into the barn in 1957 yes. and taking over Pollock's yes, former studio space. Yes, a very brave space. move, arguably. Incredibly <laughs> courageous, yes, yeah. I think. For anyone who's mm. suffered any significant loss themselves, mm. they'll be able to empathise mm. with what that would have felt like yeah. to reclaim that space as yeah. her own. Yeah. And it's Give worth remembering <laughs> that, you know, it had been mythologised in Life magazine and all of these photographs, totally. Hans and Muth's film. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but I knew from the start that the exhibition would hinge on that moment. So yes. downstairs would be from the move into the barn in 57 that onwards and upstairs mm. would be 
all of the makeshift mm. spaces that she turns into studios mm -hmm. in, in the earlier years, whether that's her working in the studio she shares with Pollock in Ninth Street, whether it's her making a studio in the Hoffman School, yeah. whether it's the upstairs bedroom in Springs, all of these um, yeah. awkward spaces yes, that she yes. finds to and be able she, to work. And then she, as you said, thrives and, and opens up into the space below, which is very reflective of that narrative I thought that, yeah. was, that was really wonderful because as we've talked about the, there are some huge paintings on the walls yeah. down here that need their own they need their own Absolutely. walls they need their own space and they just they thrive in here as, yeah. you know, as she did in her new space which yeah. I thought was fantastic um, you know it's very noticeable that Krasn's life seems to be punctuated by these really sort of traumatic events mm -hmm. but she seems to kind of um, almost develop a ferocity out mm -hmm. of that which I thought was an incredibly um, as we've said brave mm -hmm. uh, response mm -hmm. What's kind of your opinion on how those life events have affected the works that we're seeing today? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've always been interested in the fact that m several of the abstract expressionist painters, and in mm. my opinion, several of the most interesting, mm. all come from emigre backgrounds. Mm. So Ashil Gorky, yes. Mark Rothko, mm. John Graham, you know, many of these figures um, have had quite turbulent backgrounds mm. from the from childhood, mm. actually. Mm. So I think you do feel this tenacity within Krasner's work, mm. and it's not irrelevant that she's had to fight mm. from the very beginning to be mm. able to be an artist. It's yes. not um, Absolutely. a conventional, let alone a kind of encouraged pathway for her. Mm. She doesn't have that same attitude to sort of bohemian New York. Mm. So, um, yeah, and I think what follows, mm. and again, this is where it becomes relevant that she is considered a first-generation abstract mm. expressionist artist, is because she has to deal with, you know, graduating. From, she leaves the National Academy mm. because of the Wall Street crisis, yeah, yeah, because yeah. of the Great Depression. She can't afford mm. schooling anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so these events really do shape the course of her mm. artistic career. But she also shapes them. She also mm. chooses how she will respond to them. So she doesn't let them weaken her. It's very much, um, it just builds her. Exactly. You know, I mean, you're fantastic. sat in front of a painting called Through Blue, which is made in the period after she slips yes, on Main Street her, in East she broke Hampton, her arm. That was fascinating. breaks her right arm, and she paints it with her left hand. I mean, you know, that takes a certain kind of person, doesn't it? Exactly. To, to let these events build you and, and not break that absolutely incredible I felt very inspired when I read that actually about her breaking her arm yeah. I just thought god yeah what would you do if your livelihood was was in this and then well she had no option it, you know yeah. as you said tenacity is a great word um as I said kind of before she sort of plays with these absences like the absence of light in her mm -hmm. studio the absence of color um I kind of to me it, it felt like what we kind of lose and lack and, and I'm also talking about the people that she's lost too. Mm. Do you think that's kind of a, we sort of tapped upon it, but motivated her in a way that that sense of loss of what she doesn't have rather than what she does have? Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea. I think she's used to working within constraint. Mm. And I think that's relevant to sort of think about both in terms of like, we were talking about the constraint of her background, but mm. you know, She's literally on the breadline in the yeah. 1930s. And mm -hmm. by the time they move out to Springs in 45, they have no running hot water. Mm -hmm. You know, this, they are really impoverished. Mm -hmm. So their relationship to materials is always one in which um, scarcity dictates mm -hmm. a lot. So I think totally. when she creatively uses, you know, the restriction of her palette or restriction of light or these mm -hmm. different kind of qualities later on, 
it's partly because she's gone through those periods mm. earlier. Mm, mm, absolutely. There's quite a spectrum of her work on display and it very much flaunts her talents in a variety of areas, but also, as you mentioned earlier, shows the different facets of her personality. Why do you think it's so important to have showed the full spectrum of her talent? Mm. Well, mostly just because people haven't had a chance to experience her mm. work. And I think yeah. where they have had a chance to experience mm. it, you know, we're lucky enough to have been able to borrow paintings from the Whitney and Philadelphia mm. and LACMA and many of these wonderful American mm. museums. But where they will have experienced her work is a single piece in a larger collection display about yeah. the story of the New York School. Mm. So I think, especially with an artist like Krasner, who has this evolution and works in these cycles, it's really important that if you're going to present her to be able to tell the full story in all its richness. Totally, yeah, absolutely. And, as, and I think there's a beautiful quote that's on the wall that says, um, it, to, to not express yourself is, is not, live, you're not living if you're not evolving. Yeah. Um, and that sense of evolution is very present in this yeah. entire exhibition. Do you have any favourites that you're allowed to say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a really annoying question. question but... Well, I can answer it because I just pick a different favourite every, every time. time. <laughs> I, mean, I have a lot of favourites in the show. And mm. um, the little images are pretty high up. My there for my me. favourites too. I just loved their like impasto kind of. And I love the quote oh. on the wall that she says, you know, you can have a tiny painting that is monumental in scale. Mm. And I think, mm. you know, for those of us who are interested in the kind of history of the gendering of artists, yeah. there's so much that she is pointedly mm. saying in that. Mm. Oh, it's um, very political. I yeah. did pick up on that. <laughs> but they're yeah. they're exquisite paintings, and I. You know, I think about when she first went and visited Miro's Constellation series when they were on show at Pierre Matisse Gallery and she said, she wrote to a friend of hers and she said, every painting is a little miracle. And, you know, I think the same I is true that. of those. How that conveys such passion, doesn't it, in what she's doing. Um, okay, what would you like the takeaway from this exhibition to be? I suppose that... Um, she was a formidable artist as well as a formidable woman mm. and that the work has stood the test of time mm. which I think it really sings absolutely but also an appreciation that this is something that you have to experience in the flesh mm. you know that it's you cannot translate mm. this into posters or images or articles like mm. there is something about coming and you'll see we're sat on one of our beautiful benches totally. that we've made for Absolutely. the exhibition David Chuckfield I mean, originals they look like they were made oak. for this gallery they, they are were. beautiful <laughs> how wow you know, that's a big gesture to say actually we need benches we need mm. pause points we want people to sit mm -hmm. and meditate with these works it's a very thoughtful exhibition and it's a very visceral exhibition as a word yeah. you used earlier it is um, you do have to come, you do have to see it in the flesh, and it, it has absolutely wowed me. When can um, everybody see? When can so we see from this tomorrow, 30th May through to the 1st of September. Fantastic. Thank you so much for Thank talking you. to me today, Eleanor. It's Not been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The Lee Krasner Living Colour Exhibition is now open at the Barbican until September and I encourage everyone to go and see it. It was a very bold and thoughtful presentation on a female artist that has been somewhat overlooked in Europe. That is all we've got time for this afternoon. Thank you for listening to Art Then and Now with me, Anna Gammon.